Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am here with Amir Habibian. Amir is a senior staff engineer manager at Qualcomm. Amir, welcome to the Twomo AI podcast. Yeah, thank you. Good to be here. So we were just chatting. You were up bright and early this morning delivering your CVPR presentation, which we'll be talking about in this interview. But uh, how did it go? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was actually interesting. So it was the presentation about uh, starting 4 a.m., my earliest presentation in my life. But uh, it was actually quite <laughs> nice, very active. Intra- I was happy that there were a lot of interesting discussions, a lot of interest and insight from people. So it was a very interesting discussion, actually. But that's awesome. That's awesome. Before we get too far in, uh, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came into the field of AI. Sure, sure. My background is in, uh, in computer science. And actually, I did a bachelor in computer engineering. And um, in the first or second year of my bachelor study, I participated in uh, in an online competition for sort of solving a chess-like game. And I found it very interesting because you could interact with a problem and make an algorithm, let it run, and um, change it, improve it, and sort of interacting with some intelligence agent, which I really uh, liked it. And I thought, yeah, maybe it's uh, I have to pursue uh, my career in AI. Then I did a master and a PhD in artificial intelligence on computer vision, to be more precise. And I, in 2011, I started my PhD. I joined a University of Amsterdam, where they have a very good team on computer vision, always a top performer in, in public benchmarks like ImageNet, like Pascal VOC, TrackBit, all the kind of online competitions. So they had a very strong team and made some instrumental contributions to Bag of Word, which was by then the state-of-the-art uh, visual recognition pipeline, they basically developed selective search algorithm, uh, color shift, um, Fisher vector, a lot of instrumental contributions into the Bag of Word representation. And I joined the theme and um, started a PhD on, on video understanding and on um, recognizing complex activities in video. And my core contribution was on self learning self-supervised video representations, basically, where given a bunch of videos and sort of uh, their uh, associated text, like YouTube captions, for example, or closed captions, subtitles, and whatever, so sort of loosely connected text, associated text, I wanted to, I actually worked on learning some sort of uh, representation. And the challenge there was sort of extracting some sort of underlying structure, how this text and video and vision are uh, kind of uh, connected to each other. And by finding this underlying structure and data, you basically could learn a representation, which will be helpful for a downstream tasks like recognition, localization, and understanding the videos, basically. And, and they're basically, it turned out to be quite effective a way to learning representations, participated in some benchmarking online competitions, and uh, was uh, quite uh, in the top performers and brought some good papers, won best paper award in AC Multimedia, which was a kind of uh, top tier conference uh, in, in the community by then. And then, uh, yeah, um, then moved back after graduation, just moved back to Qualcomm, basically. Nice, nice. So um, tell us a little bit about the focus of your work at Qualcomm. Do you work predominantly on video perception there? Yes, actually, when I uh, when I joined, um, I started on uh, some um, perception task, uh, namely object detection and tracking in video and pose estimation for a while. Then 
I think in 2018, uh, with my colleague, we started a new project on compressed, like a video compression, compressing videos with generative models. And uh, there, the idea is that since the generative models are getting better and better in generating images and even videos, so why not just to use them as a replacement for the compression algorithm and just compress the videos? Because in a way, video compression is a way of conditional generation of the video, where you you conditionalize your generator with uh, some sort of representation of of the video, basically. So we started a project there, and uh, I worked on it for uh, two years and then uh, started a new project uh, on uh, efficient uh, video processing. This is what I'm uh, actually now uh, working. And so I started a new effort, and now I'm leading a team working on developing methods for efficient processing of the video streams, basically. Got it. And when we talk about efficient video processing, are we talking about computational efficiency? and, And what kind of processing are you mostly focused on? Yes, uh, it, yeah, I, we mainly uh, talk about focus on uh, computational efficiency, like um, just uh, doing less computation or using less memory and less energy, basically, to processing the video. And we actually, um, so there, this is a lot of uh, different tasks which can benefit from it, speaking like a semantic segmentation or object detection or pose estimation, even um, video-to-video models like denoising super resolution. So all of these networks usually in many tasks have to run on a sequence of frames coming from cameras, like from the car or from your visual reality headset. You usually deal with a sequence of images which are highly correlated and they are coming from the scene. And uh, many of them are getting pretty high spatial resolution, also high frame rate, which makes them very expensive to compute at that resolution and at that frame rate. So it's a it's a very kind of common use case in many applications you face and with uh, you often deal with uh, with videos and with highly correlated data which are expensive and uh, but the good news is that uh, there are a lot of redundancies into data so the higher the resolution of the image becomes and also the higher the frame rate becomes the data also becomes more and more redundant and basically the rate of information the rate of input data linearly grows uh, with your uh, with your frame rate and with your spatial resolution, but the amount of information which exists in your data is actually pretty sublinear. For example, in audio, in audio signal, there is depending on the frame rate, but usually there are like a 512 kilobits per second uh, in every seconds of the audio. But looking at the speech which is being are in there, it is much less information. Basically, you can just summarize the whole 10 seconds of video with a, a, a short amount of text. So the amount of information is much less. So processing uh, also, I believe, shouldn't grow linearly with the amount of data. So you have to somehow adjust your computation to the amount of information being received by your sensor. And these are all our main motivation uh, and main intuition to start a track on that. How can you create some building blocks of a neural network processor where you can um, leverage this inherent redundancy in your data, somehow factorize it and, uh, and just don't compute the same thing over and over? maybe sort of prevent computing similar things and reuse what has been processed and for uh, for any task in general. Got it. Can you kind of talk through the different ways that you approach making video models run more performantly? Yeah, sure. In general, I think there has been a lot of work uh, on video compression done and uh, where uh, they also want to sort of you know factor out the redundancy in the data uh, by a lot of ways, for example, by computing the residuals, learning the motion and compensating the motion, quantizing the residual entropy coding. So, so many ways, which has been very well explored over the decades, how you can compress the amount of data 
to represent the video basically, to reconstruct it well from the uh, less amount of bitweeds, which is actually great. A lot of techniques are there. But uh, these techniques are usually comes with an extra processing cost. You have to spend more and more compute to do this compression. So many of those techniques cannot, doesn't really speed up the performance. So uh, our main focus was how can we sort of make, reuse, uh, without introducing more computation to that model, without increasing computation, just sort of leverage this redundancy to reduce the compute. And many of the existing networks just run frame by frame. So they get one frame, they pass it to the layer, process all the, you know, run, uh, activate all the neurons of that frame, then go to the next layer, run all the neurons again, and this is how they just process. Like layer by layer and every layer, they process the whole frame. And um, I believe this is quite wasteful, and this is uh, not the way uh, to go. Also, if you look at your brain, the human brain, this is not how it works. Uh, if you look at the activations in the neurons of a human brain, you observe that they activate very sparsely, actually. They don't activate all at a fixed rate, and they are very sparse, basically. And they usually, you, each of our neurons usually fires once and there is enough of the stimulus, like there is enough of changes in their input. They accumulate the number, the amount of changes and the amount of information coming to every neuron and activate once there is a sufficient amount of activation, sufficient amount of stimulus in the, in the neurons. Mm -hmm. So um, I think this, this, maybe this is the reason why human brain is way more efficient uh, in terms of power consumption. It's like a, you use like a six watt versus or normal GPUs run like a 25, uh, 250 watts, uh, basically. And um, this is also how has been inspired a lot of uh, effort on, uh, for example, artificial spiking neural networks. They try to mimic the same concept. They want to sort of create some neurons which have some sort of uh, potential and they uh, just gather it and uh, fire once there is an enough of that. And they don't run like asynchronously. They don't run synchronously at every layer. But that also hasn't turned out to be very successful in practice because these uh, sparse activations and basically bookkeeping of all these activations is very memory intensive and um, consumes a lot of energy. And also some of these operations, uh, which happens in the spiking neurons, like this exponential decay of the potentials, are not efficient to implement in the silicon hardware. And uh, for example, if you have an analog system, the, like uh, you can model this uh, exponential decay with uh, with the current uh, of a capacitor. So if you have a capacitor, its uh, current uh, decays over time. But if you want to program it in a digital computer, like what we have nowadays, uh, it, it requires a lot of uh, multiplication and a lot of memory access, which is even more expensive than normal uh, feedforward neural networks, which we have decades today. So, so far, this uh, mimicking this spiking neural network hasn't been so successful in the digital computers. And um, so I think maybe we need to, um, we, we should still inspire and mimic this type of behaviors, but not uh, very precisely, like a way by way, because you have to adopt the idea based on what you have. This is also how what has happened to human when it wants to fly, basically, right? We uh, Initially, we wanted to look at the birds and see how the wing moves, which was not successful because uh, the human, uh, like the, the, the birds are made of you know, bones, uh, feathers, different things. <laughs> While when you want to create a, a plane, uh, an aircraft with metal, it's very different. So we could successfully fly once we adopted those uh, concepts to the material which we had, basically. All right. This is the broad argument for all neural nets. It's not exactly how the brain works, but it's somewhat inspired by how neurons in the brain work. Exactly, exactly. I'm mentioning this example because there has been a trend in neural network called like neuromorphic computing, where uh, we wanted to build uh, spiking neural networks. 
and um, and they didn't turn out to be so very successful compared to existing um, existing um, a lot of video actually processing has been followed in that direction and um, I, I still believe that this is a right direction to go but we need to adopt the concepts basically and this is what we try to do within our CVPR paper and um, for example uh, we, we try to implement the concept of residuals and uh, triggering the neurons at every location based on that but adopt these concepts to be more friendly to the uh, to the feedforward neural networks, basically in, in sleep convolution. All right. Well, let's let me pause here just to kind of recap what I'm hearing. It sounds like the basic premise is that much of the prior work in terms of video processing treats a video like a stream of static images and processes them a frame at a time and what you're suggesting here is that your work is looking at a sequence of images and treating that sequence as if these frames aren't like IID, you know, sets of data, but rather they have correlations between them and you're taking advantage of that. Yeah, precisely. It's a little surprising to, to hear because when I think back to basic DSP class that I took in grad school, like the foundation of compression was looking at these relationships between the frames. And it's surprising to me that we haven't been doing that all along. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yes, exactly. So there has been uh, a lot of work on how to represent the video based on the differences, basically. Like this is the the core concept in in the compression, like in HEBC, in all the codecs, where you have the concept of iframes, like where you uh, treat it as an image, but all the consecutive frames coming are represented as sort of with respect to the reference work in terms of how how every block or pixel has moved, uh, what needs to be added as a residual to that. And this is the core concept. But in terms of uh, existing neural networks, they are not so friendly to those type of operations. So if you want to implement those concepts for processing, it usually comes an extra cost. You need some sort of optical flow network to learn how to warp it, which hasn't cost. And um, also uh, computation on the residuals hasn't been much processed, uh, much studied for for efficiency, for the purpose of efficiency. So uh, going back to the the existing pipelines, most of them still run uh, frame by frame. And if they want to run more efficiently, uh, they uh, mostly rely to remove the redundancy in the weights. For example, there are so many ways to uh, to just get rid of the redundancies in your weights, like by tensor composition, like compressing your layers, or by pruning the uh, redundant channels or off channels, or uh, neural architecture search to find smaller and uh, more expressive units. Also in video, a lot of works on decomposing the spatial temp, like a three, two-dimensional channels into uh, 2D kernel, like a 2D and one like a one by one temporal kernel, so or a temporal shift module. A lot of work has been done to make speed up the video processing, but they mostly rely on uh, factoring out the redundancy in the weight in the kernels. While what we uh, think uh, should be done and is complementary to all these efforts is uh, get rid of the redundancy in, in activations, basically uh, in the input signal and also in the uh, in the feature maps, uh, which are also redundant because of the redundance, inherent redundancy in your data, basically. And uh, I believe studying this kind of uh, activation redundancy is underexplored and can be much further processed, especially uh, studied, especially from the uh, from the compute efficiency perspective. Got it. And so the this paper that we've been referring to is uh, one of your papers, a CVPR skip convolutions for 
efficient video processing. This idea of skip convolutions, this is the mechanism that accomplishes what you're describing. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and how, how it works? Sure, sure. The key idea is, uh, is uh, what we just discussed. So it's pretty simple that for every frame, uh, let's represent, like, let's bring the core concept of iframe and residuals into the, into the convnet perspective. That for every frame, uh, let's, uh, instead of uh, computing the whole feature maps on this frame, let's represent this frame by the difference, by the residuals versus some reference frame, which usually is the previous frame, basically. And uh, since the convolution is a linear operator, the output feature map is exactly the same as if you apply your convolutional kernel on this difference, basically, on the residual difference, and just sum up the output with the previous features, which you already have computed. You have it in the past, basically. And the nice thing about it is that now you have to, you need to apply the convolutions on the residual frame, which is a sparse object, basically, especially of the small sparse object, because all the constant and stationary part of the image have a very small or even zero residuals, which is zero input to the convolution, which means you don't need to apply compute the, the kernel computation, the multiplication on those regions, basically. And uh, what, what we observe is that, but although there are a lot of them are very small, but uh, there are few which are exactly zero. So you need to uh, decide and you have to sort of further sparsify. So if you want to gain more and more compute, uh, the more sparsify uh, these uh, residuals, you will gain more compute gain. So we work on different ways to how you can enforce more sparsity into your feature map space. The easiest thing which you can do is just by uh, decide based on the significance or the magnitude of the motion, magnitude of the residuals. So if the residuals are small enough, uh, you can just assume they are zero and they just skip those locations, which works to a good extent, uh, especially if you basically consider the weights uh, also into account because we know that the norm of the convolution is uh, upper bounded by the norm of the input and the norm of the weights, basically, based on young uh, inequality. So you can make a better approximation of your output by considering the weight norm, the norm of your output, but also considering the uh, norm of your weights. And uh, we, we tried that, and so it, it works uh, well, uh, better, and um the nice thing about it is that you don't even need to train it because you can just get a network trained for images as it is and just sort of apply some threshold, some cutoff on the residuals and just save the compute. So it can work for off the shelf for any networks trained and you don't need to any training. But the problem with this is that uh, sometimes uh, there are some significant motions, uh, but not important ones. For example, in background, if you want to do human pose estimation, there might be some uh, moves in your background uh, which generates some significant motions, like the residuals norm or magnitude of residuals are uh, are significant, but uh, they shouldn't matter for the for the human pose estimation because human pose estimation is about body and not about the background. And uh, you need to have more smart way to decide where where to compute and where not. This is where we uh, basically train a very small neural network next to every convolution. In practice, this is an one additional output channel to the convolution. So it has a fraction of the extra overhead for every layer. And uh, those layers basically look at the input and they make a binary decision based on the current input, whether do we need to process it or not. And um, so they can much better capture how to skip and sparsify unimportant but big residuals, basically, which uh, brings it to the, to the next level of the performance and it's uh, make it more robust to the changes, which actually happens in practice. So it's uh, in many use cases, the background is not that static or the camera moves and all these movements makes uh, some residual. So you need to be sort of 
have some ways to suppress the unimportant versus important uh, residuals. Is there a relationship between what you're doing with this output channel and the saliency map that it's creating and other forms of attention that folks apply in images and video? Sure, sure. They are actually very relevant because we have, for example, in spatial excitement or self or attention, you also predict sort of attention maps to modulate the important regions. In a, in a way, this is a similar concept. But there is a one main difference is that these saliency maps here are binary because uh, normally when you have an attention, you have non-zero weights, you have small or uh, large, but they are non-zero. So if it is even a very small value, you still have to do the computation, mm-hmm. and uh, but, but downweight it. But here we want to be exactly zero or one. We want to have a binary mass because we want to decide whether to skip or whether to process. And uh, so in a way, you can consider it as an, as an a hard attention where you have a binary uh, decision, which make it actually a non-differentiable problem because then you have an, now you have a discrete variable, which uh, is not very well, doesn't have a gradient. So you have to use uh, some sort of approximation and you have to use sort of biased views on a straight through estimator and then um, to approximate the gradient in a backward pass, basically, but and by adding grumble noise. So this is um, um, a lot of work around how you can these days train uh, discrete variables end-to-end with your neural network. So in this case, we use some uh, grumble uh, reparameterization trick to uh, be able to optimize such a uh, non-differentiable function. Got it, got it. And so that's one of the papers that you presented at CVPR. There's a second paper, the frame exit paper. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Uh, sure. This is um, uh, another work which is, uh, in a way, similar to the first one because there also we want to see uh, what we can skip and not process. But uh, in this work, at the frame level rather than on a special location base. In skip convolution, we make these decisions at an every pixel level, every output pixel level. But here we want to decide uh, what frames we can entirely skip, basically, and what frames we can process. And that paper is about video classification. And in uh, video classification, a typical uh, pipeline is you extract some frames from the whole video, usually at a fixed rate, like a one frame every second or every half a second. And then you start processing these sampled frames from the beginning to the end uh, to basically make an understanding about what is happening in the video. And um, our, our, our motivation was that in some cases, for some video, you really don't need to look at all the frames. And you uh, can make this decision somewhere after seeing a couple of frames. And uh, while for some other uh, videos, you may need to process more frames, this decision, they are more complex and more diverse. So you are not sure. You need to see more and more of the video. And, and to be clear, we're talking about classifying the entire video or segment as opposed to classifying what's happening in a particular frame? Exactly, exactly. So you have an, a short or long video, and um, there what you want to assign a label for the whole clip or whole video, basically. So it's like it. a holistic classification of the video. And so the premise is at some point, you've got enough information that continuing to process the rest of the video isn't going to change your decision. Exactly, exactly. But this is input specific, right? You cannot make this decision a prior because some of the examples, this is sample specific. For some video, this is a simple, uh, while for another one, this is hard. So you need some sort of conditional compute mechanism, which based on the given example, decides how much of compute do you need to spend on it. Uh, there are already some uh, some works uh, about uh, selecting the frames, what frames to select in the literature. 
And uh, But what they usually do, they phrase the problem as a search problem. And where uh, the problem is uh, finding one by one what frames to process, go from this frame and then from this frame, go to the next frame, process the next frame. And so they define it as a sort of sequential decision-making problem, sequential search problem, and solve it uh, usually with reinforcement learning. There you have an RL agent which look at the different frames, make a decision about your next move, uh, your what needs to be uh, referred to, and then in the end you you make a final classification. And this RL agent and classifier are trained together, which uh, are usually hard to uh, to train when you have this reinforcement learning agent, and the, the training is quite difficult. And it's also uh, you look at these models; they are pretty complex models actually. And uh, here, instead of phrasing it as a search problem, uh, we simply make stick to very simple actually criteria. So we don't care about how you go from frame to another frame. You can just go uh, sequentially, or actually what we do, we just um, uh, do some sort of binary search. Uh, for example, we look at the first, if you want to look at three frames of a video, we look at the beginning, middle, and end. And if you want to do more, you also start to look at the, the middles of the half. So we do a binary search over the frame. So we have a very simple deterministic uh, search algorithm, no need for learning. But what we learn is some sort of decision maker, which decides whether we are uh, ready to make the decision or not, basically. We learn a binary classifier, binary gate, basically, uh, to decide. And uh, basically, we formulate the problem as an early exiting, uh, which is an, a common trend for conditional compute and has been explored for images. And uh, what they do normally, they if you have a deep neural network, you add some sort of intermediate classifiers uh, throughout the depth of the network. And once each of these intermediate classifiers or kind of early exits are confident about the classifier, you don't, you skip uh, the rest of the network, basically. And we got, adopt the same concept and apply it on video. And here, instead of uh, exiting over, so we have a fixed depth network, but what we exit is the input of the video, basically, the input of the whole network. So we start by sequentially learning and looking at the frames, and we have a uh, gate in the end of the network, basically, by looking at the representation of the current frame and the accumulated representation, which we have been so far, sort of global estate, which you have seen so far, by comparing between these two and looking at the confidence, it realized that, okay, now we are confident enough to skip. Or even if you are not confident, the, the representation is not getting better. I'm unconfident, but my confidence is not changing. So uh, there is not much, not much of updates is happening into the representation. So I'm not sure, but let's skip. Let's, uh, let's cut processing, basically. And so, uh, yeah, so some sort of gates are, are added to the network and they are trained uh, together. And what we observe is that if you just leave it training, these gates uh, have the tendency to postpone the decisions because the most accurate prediction is when you actually see all the frames. Uh, so we sort of regularize these gates to be, you know, to fire, to enforce them to, uh, to exit earlier and uh, train the whole framework and turn out quite uh, effective for many different architectures, 2D, 3D architectures and uh, for, for multiple data sets and tasks. And so this as, assumes or presumes some kind of linearity or monotonicity in terms of the confidence of the decision. Do you run into samples where the network is very confident that it doesn't need to continue until the very end, but the last few frames totally change the meaning of the, the video and the label that it would have been classified? 
Yeah, that's that may happen. But normally, if you look at the normal examples and the majority of the examples in the data sets, if they are, if you, they are usually, especially for short clips where there is not uh, much of changes happening, uh, they usually happens less. But that's actually quite possible if, uh, if yeah, uh, this type of. But these are uh, quite rare in, pop, in rare uh, typical data sets. Is there a particular benchmark data set that you use to test this? Sure, we used on uh, on ActivityNet where it has a long videos. Uh, we use mini kinetics, which has a shorter, like a 10 second uh, clips. And we also uh, tested on uh, holistic video understanding. It's a new benchmark for uh, beyond action. It has objects, scenes, actions. And so it's a you know, kind of mixture of different categories, like a, a new benchmark. That's what we use for, for, yeah, for evaluating. Mm-hmm. And what other approaches did you compare against? We compared with uh, some uh, some of these um, existing ways to sample the frames, like uh, this reinforcement learning agents, uh, right. sample selections. Also, some there are some methods which use on audio and other modalities to localize where to process. They just look at like listen to loop in some other paper which use the audio information to uh, to localize or some sort of sampler networks like SC sampler. So a, a wide range of uh, frame selection methods. That's where we they were the direct competitors. And uh, also we compared on different benchmarks because uh, different backbones, because you can process videos with 2D convolutions, with 3D convolutions like X3D and with ResNet efficient that so it, they all um, have comes at different backbones basically. So we, we compared against those. Got it. And is there an opportunity to combine the skip convolutions and the frame exit approach for classification applications? Yes, I think they actually treat um, the problem from different angles, so they are complementary. You can decide uh, to reduce your frames, and uh, even with a reduced set of frames, there are a spatial redundancy. Some of them uh, might be, the background might be still not has changed a lot, and there are spatial redundancy where escape convolution can factor out. So I believe they are complementary, basically. So you could combine them. Doesn't sound like it's something that you've tried in the lab yet, though. No, not, not definitely. <laughs> So, you know, maybe let's take a step back and and have you kind of contextualize all this into kind of the broader direction of your research and how you see it applying at Qualcomm. Yeah, sure. I think we are, I think in general, this efficient, like looking at leveraging ways to leverage this redundancy is a promising direction and coming up with some sort of better representation, which uh, reflects the continuity of a video in space and time rather than just discrete sampling is uh, in general, I think, is an, um, something which needs to be further explored. And um, maybe some new ways, like new mathematics to uh, convolutions uh, can be helpful, like something like ordinary differential equations, for example, uh, or looking into spiking neural networks, some sort of a spiking neural, some sort of more uh, continuous representation or dynamic systems, some sort of a ways uh, these kind of tools can be helpful to develop more continuous representations. And uh, another angle, I think, is the conditional compute is because the video is a highly conditional signal. Every frame basically depends on the previous frame and what to process depends on what you have processed. So I think there are a lot of problems where you can use conditional compute methods and develop conditional compute methods for video. And also looking at like a connecting or reducing the gap between video compression and video processing, I think is um, something which we should uh, do more. They are now quite separated, but I think there are many ways like quantizing the residuals 
or using motion estimation uh, inside the network. So, so these are techniques which they can be used for also increasing the, the, the efficiency of the processing. And I think these are all very relevant to Qualcomm because we have a lot of applications like for XR, for autonomous driving. In a lot of our applications, we are dealing with high frame rate video data and um, camera use cases. And this is where we can uh, use to reduce the power and the uh, and the computation. And another aspect is that uh, a lot of these uh, video processing algorithms may need to uh, change the hardware architecture because, um, for example, they need a different memory demands. Like video networks, we know that they are memory demanding. The input is bigger. And if you want also to model the dependencies across time, either with recurrent neural network or with 3D convolutions, uh, you need to sort of cache and, uh, and maintain information uh, from the previous uh, time steps. And these are all imposed extra and different uh, requirements for hardware design. You may need an uh, increase your DMA requirement. It may different way of caching, maybe even different structure in your processing units. So these are all, uh, may, may lead to a change in hardware architectures. And I think uh, Qualcomm is one of the uh, few players which basically is very well positioned to co-design the hardware uh, with the new algorithms and with the new ways to process the video. So I think it's quite, uh, well positioned to uh, to study this uh, this area. Awesome, awesome. What else is Qualcomm up to at CVPR? Yeah, actually, there are a lot happening, and uh, we have an, uh, a colleague of mine actually has a paper, interesting paper, actually an oral paper on sort of a loss function and a structured loss function, uh, which is quite effective for dense prediction tasks. Dense prediction, I mean, uh, the networks like semantic segmentation, depth estimation edge detection, where there is a lot of structure in your output. And uh, what happens, uh, the typical loss function is uh, there is still a pixel-wise, like pixel cross-entropy or a pixel-wise mini-squared error, which compare your ground truth and your prediction pixel by pixel, which is not very effective in evaluating how well the structure is predicted by the network, basically. For example, if you have two images, which are very, a pair of images, which are very similar, actually they're identical, but has been translated or transformed or rotated a little bit, uh, which basically is, a, is not a, is a subtle uh, error, but looking at these pixel-wise errors, they can penalize it quite harshly. You can get a very high error, and which, of course, if you have a bad uh, estimation of the error, you, you can't learn it very well. So, um, and uh, this paper basically wants to solve this problem, and um, we propose a loss function which preserves more the structural similarity in the predictions. And basically, this is an, uh, an, and writing down a loss function like a closed form uh, formulation for an, a structural uh, uh, losses is not easy. So, it probably is a very complex mathematical object. So, we basically design a neural network which learns uh, to predict uh, such a translation. Basically, this network is trained on a pair of images with a known transformation. We already know how these two images are related. For example, we use a homography to uh, translate, to transform one to another, and we let the networks to predict the, the transformation, basically. For example, by predicting a three-by-three three homography transformation with eight degree of freedom. And, uh, and once you train this network, you can use it to assess how structurally are a pair of images uh, with respect to each other. For example, uh, we want this transformation to be as close as possible to identity, because if it is identity, then you know that this is a perfect match. It's a perfect prediction. And for that, you can just rely on the Euclidean uh, distance between your prediction with an identity, which works pretty well for simple transformation, like um, translation or uh, scaling. 
And uh, we also turned out, uh, we realized that uh, geodesic distance is more powerful, has some properties, which is more powerful to more complex uh, transformation like perspective or rotations and whatever. So basically what we do, we, we train this network and after training, we just uh, plug into a network, like a, a dense prediction network and uh, add it to the, uh, to the pixel voice loss function. And it's um, consistently improved the results on uh, in both in single task and multitask respect uh, problems like segmentation, edge detection, depth estimation on multiple data sets without actually increasing any compute during inference. The only change is that you just add another training uh, loss during the training and, uh, and just, uh, yeah, at no cost at inference time. Okay. Aren't these translations that you're describing uh, what convolutions are meant to address in CNNs? Uh, yes, uh, but uh, here we are talking about the loss function, basically. Uh, yeah, the convolutions are learned to be translation invariant, uh, but in the end, they have made a, a prediction and how to make this, this final prediction also translation invariant, this is where uh, is missing because the, we just rely on pixel-wise difference. We simply can't do it. So we need to uh, sort of use extra knowledge to, to do that. Got it. So the idea is that once you have the prediction, as opposed to doing another round of compute or prediction, if you have a translation invariant prediction, then you can apply it more, you can apply it across translations. Yes, I think that's uh, yeah, more or less the same. Okay, got it. And so what is the benchmark for this paper? Like, what are you comparing it against? We, for segmentation, uh, we, we, we do it on city escapes, and uh, they're actually it's uh, in the leaderboards. Like it's a it's a very well known you know benchmark, and mm -hmm. uh, many submissions. I think like uh, more than 200, 250 submissions are there, and uh, it's ranked uh, among the top three based on the, what metric to look at. So it's performing very well. We also look into Pascal uh, context, into NYU datasets, so multiple datasets, both for segmentation and also multitask learning. Where you have edge detection and like a normal surface predictions and um, depth estimation, so at, at multiple setup and consistently improve uh, with respect to the other networks without the loss function. Got it. And your group usually shows several different demonstrations and does workshops and, and things like that at CVPR. Are you involved in any of those as well? Uh, sure, yeah. We have an, uh, actually a couple of uh, interesting demos this year. And um, my, my favorite is the is a neural uh, video decoder. And uh, it's about replacing the whole video compression pipeline, which actually are very well engineered over decades. Like you can look at HEVC, look at MPEG-4, and the JVET, the new codex. They have been you know, incredible amount of engineering mm -hmm. and highly optimized and um, to create, and they actually work extremely well. And uh, but here we had some other you know promises to uh, to go for uh, to see whether you can replace the whole machinery with some big neural network basically. So it has uh, some benefits actually. And uh, the first benefit is that looking at the standard uh, you know codex, they are hardly baked into the hardware. So when a new standard comes, they usually you need um, some uh, dedicated hardware in many platforms that exist some dedicated hardware just for decoding or for compression of the videos. And uh, and then when a next generation of the hardware uh, comes, a next generation of video codecs comes, they need further uh, some like some a new hardware uh, dedicated processor, basically, which makes uh, the deployment more difficult. This is why you don't see that often a new compression algorithm. It takes years to switch to the new generation hardware. But with neural network, basically, if you can replace the whole compression with a neural network which runs on some generic uh, general purpose AI accelerator, going to the next generation of codec is just downloading a new set of parameters and run it the same. So you can 
it's basically you can go to the next uh, generation of the compression algorithm every day or every minute. You just download a new set of mates and then, okay, you are on the next standard. So it's, it, it's more generic and drawn and can leverage all the parallelism in the neural processors. And uh, another aspect is that, so there are a lot of, you know, because they are learned, so they involve much less engineering for upgrading this, uh, this new codex. For example, if you have a new set of data like point clouds, or if you have the stereo images, or you have some even uncertain type of data like medical images, or on some like survey lens, so which are very specific domains, all which you need is just to retrain them on your data. You don't need to come up with the new engineering, come up with the new compression algorithms and new components. You just retrain your model. So they are way easier to adopt to new data. And if you can just adopt them to the data at hand, they can do an extremely well job, actually. They can you know, just learn to how greatly compress this certain type of images or this certain type of data, basically. Which is also, and another thing is that, so they are based on generative models. So they can hallucinate information even if they are not there. For example, if you just you know send the uh, with the compression with normal compression algorithm, if the data is missing, you cannot reconstruct the signal. But here uh, you can hallucinate like a uh, the, the signal. So if data is missing, you can just if like the face is missing, you can come up with some some face which is similar, or you can at least replace it with something. For example, in background, you really don't care much about how the the tree looks like. If we can generate some good tree, even if it's not exactly that tree doesn't uh, affect much the perceptual quality uh, of the video. So basically, these generative models can be way better in uh, perceptual quality of the videos. And so, so many, actually, promises, which uh, makes this neural video codex very promising direction. And we have been uh, studying uh, in Qualcomm this type of uh, works for a while. And uh, what we are showing in this uh, CVPR is the first time in industry where we are doing on-device uh, real-time decoding of the HD videos, basically, which is quite expensive because these neural networks are expensive, the generative models, and also involve entropy decoding. A lot of computation are needed. And we managed to basically do this on the Snapdragon 8 uh, at real time, plus 30 frames per second. And uh, the secret source is uh, we basically hand-engineered the uh, sort of engineered a well-efficient decoder, which can run. So we started from our state-of-the-art a method which we have developed over years at Qualcomm, and we optimize it, the architecture to be as light as possible and quantize it so that it can run on our fixed point processors and also use an, a sort of parallel entropy coder which runs on CPU while the rest of the network is running on GPU. So we sort of distribute the compute uh, on the platform and manage to uh, get online real-time decoding. That's pretty interesting demo in my opinion. And uh, we're also showing a real-time semantic segmentation uh, demo on device, on the full HD video, actually. And um, for segmentation, it's a pretty expensive operation because your output have a lot of details. You're predicting a mask, so it's you need to preserve the boundaries and all the details of a segmentation mask. And what often happens is that these networks usually uh, cannot, you cannot extremely downsample. It's not like classification. So you need to preserve sort of high resolution images, uh, the data in your network. Usually people do multi-scale processing or hierarchical feature maps in different ways, but you still need to maintain a high resolution representation, which makes both processing and memory uh, expensive. And what we did in this demo, basically, we managed to run a full HD semantic segmentation map at uh, real time on a Snapdragon platform. And uh, there are multiple speeds of an optimization happen at network, both at an architectural level 
and quantization layer, and also at the level, at also at the reusing of time, basically. If you feed back your, your network to reuse some information already processed, so they come at a, a zero cost because they haven't already processed the value. So you don't need to recompute them. You just feed them into the network and makes uh, the networks better, basically. And uh, this met net networks, basically, we, we managed to reduce the original network by four times in terms of the number of operations and runs like a three times faster in terms of latency compared to the, to the base architecture. Of course, the other demos, we have this group equivariant uh, demo, uh, other round, a new way for quantizations, and uh, also present at, uh, at different workshops. That's, uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot going on. I encourage you to look it up and check it. Got it. Well, we'll be including a link to the blog post that your team published on the various papers and activities at CVPR. And of course, links to the papers that we discussed here in the interview. But Amir, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us about what you're up to. Sure, sure. Glad to talk to you. But just mention beyond these links, you're also sharing the codes for all of our CVPR papers and also an iClear paper. So we are open sourcing it. And uh, these are all in the Qualcomm AI Research GitHub page and will be become available soon within the coming week or so. And so, yeah, great. And very happy to talk to you. Nice. That's awesome. Well, we'll also be including a link to that GitHub so folks can check out the code for these various projects. Great. Thanks, Amir. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.